1: Welcome in San Diego, it's Jade Hindman. Today is our arts and culture show. We're telling you about a Christmas kitsch exhibit plus other events happening this weekend. And a local professor shares her experience of cultural exchange in a new memoir. This is Midday Edition, connecting our communities through conversation. In our weekend preview, we have some dance, a new nativity play, soul music, and a kitschy Christmas installation. Joining me with all the details is KPBS arts producer and editor Julia Dixon-Evans. Julia, welcome.
3: Hi, Jade. Thanks for having me. Always
1: glad to have you here. So let's start with what's called a Kitschmas pageant.
3: (laughs) Tell me more about that. So this is the artist duo known as Brian and Ryan. And they've been working together, mostly taking the form of performance art and and installation art. They've been working together for a long time, like decades. And it's two artists, Brian Black and Ryan Bulis, They are fun. They're irreverent and abstract and just really curious. And that comes across in their art. It's all super engaging. And one of the things they do nearly every year is what they call Kitschmas. And this year, it's at the Athenaeum Art Center at Bread and Salt. That's in Logan Heights. And they've set up a whole kitschy lowbrow Christmas scene with installations and displays. There's a ton of little sculptures and and weird Christmas ornaments. It's all on view through the end of the month. But the opening reception, that's Friday night, will also have a bunch of performances. There'll be some singing, but also performance art stuff. One example is Michelle Montjoy. She is this amazing local fiber artist. She will be knitting a giant sock while she's sitting in the audience. And you
1: had a chance to sit down with Brian and Ryan this week to really ask them where this fascination with kitsch comes from. Let's take a listen to that interview.
3: Okay, let's talk about kitschmas. Brian, can you tell us... What Kitschmas is and and when and why did you start doing these projects?
4: We had sort of been doing some things on our own. Uh, We're really interested in all kinds of genres of of Christmas, probably dating back to the 1950s all the way up to current. And we're, we're always personally interested in new and unique interpretations of the season and how people create decor and especially for Christmas, things that really shouldn't exist, exist all of a sudden. And there's definitely a lot of television specials and things that we definitely reflect on and we're, we're interested in and try to bring that into into our uh, Kitchmas practice. I know one thing we have happening this year that I'm excited about is we have a giant talking Christmas tree. And this is something in my childhood in Peoria, Illinois. Uh, my parents would like just drop me in front of this giant tree that would talk to me for like, I don't know, th- however long it took them to to buy Christmas presents, they would just leave me at this tree. And, um, and I'm explaining that to Ryan, and he's like, I don't know what you're talking about. And I'm like, didn't everybody have a giant talking Christmas tree? Uh, and he's like, No, I don't think so and no one else did. It, I ended up researching and it. it was a phenomenon in this little Midwestern kind of area of uh, Central Illinois. And so I guess it's just kind of Remembering all those things we we particularly loved about Christmas, you know, we didn't just love getting toys, but we just liked the trees and going to my grandma's house and seeing her older plastic ornaments and and just all the different variations of of Christmas and the Christmas decor that's out there.
3: So you're you're opening uh, a Kitschmas exhibition at the athenaeum Art Center and it's in Logan Heights can you tell us what that how this manifests in an exhibit and what are some of the elements that are that are part of Kitchmas I'll, I'll toss that one to you Ryan
0: sure <laughs> so by and large the bulk of our Kitchmas past has been ornament driven and so we've made many many ornaments over the years and they're often kind of sourced from little toys and little vintage items and all the kind of bric-a-brac of Christmas. But through the years, we've also been able to like decorate hotel lobbies. And we've created a zine that kind of created a, a narrative about us saving Kitchmas from mutant gingerbread men. And along the way, we just kind of built up all of these little other forms, including quasi-sculptural imagery. And we've been interested in expanding this out and and bringing other voices into the conversation. And so there are many ornaments in places you would expect them, like on Christmas trees and on garland, as well as on racks for sale. And then all these other kind of embellished sculptural forms will be dotted around the space. But this year is kind of special because we have a We keep calling it a pageant, but it's a little bit more of a showcase of different performance artists who are taking on Kitchmas in a kind of, when a youth Christmas pageant happens, you go and see a class like sing, right? So you see all these little acts perform maybe at a school, and it was kind of reminiscent of that idea. And so we have a variety of artists who are participating in that. So that that begins at seven o'clock and goes until we finish, um, and so the whole event is from six to nine. But the pageant begins at seven, and hopefully it will be like a fun, you know, celebration of Kitschmas and variety of forms. And we're also unsure what that will look like because we've never done a pageant like this before. So we're excited.
3: So Kitsch, the idea of Kitsch is is really wrapped up in this idea of like lowbrow art or lowbrow culture and that also implies you know a highbrow art or a highbrow culture what does that distinction mean to you in terms of kitsch and in terms of your work ryan let's let's go to you
0: sure i mean i think not having access to much of contemporary art or art museums growing up most of my exposure to visual culture was through objects and images comic books things that many artists probably are inspired by but i think being able to appreciate something that's mass produced and maybe cheaply produced or standing in line at 7-11 and looking at the gumball machines with the little toys inside and and just appreciating these the smallest of gestures that somebody designed that somebody spent time and energy making decisions and then along that mechanical process there are often little inaccuracies and when a little object is painted like sometimes you get these really kind of beautiful mistakes and so i think by and large i feel like an artist's responsibility is to shine light onto things that we sometimes overlook and in a very small way when you appreciate these kitsch objects that are often throwaway objects images cards you're bringing more empathy to the world in in, in a very small way, and, it, and I think we embrace the absurdity of that idea. But the more we commit to it, I think the more real that kind of Kitchmus magic becomes.
4: Can I add a little bit to that, Ryan? Sure. I think also the thing, even from the the very first time we had a show at at Lux, we were really amazed at like how it affected people. Like we didn't, you know, people were writing us letters saying like how this brought back wonderful memories and you know i'm not saying we have tons of fans but we definitely have some real hardcore fans out there for kitchen and people have come out and like you know we needed things done for this show and they're like we're gonna do it for you so like i feel like this has this goes beyond just the two of us and this concept and it has to do with with people wanting that those not just nostalgia but just kind of that positive memory coming back
1: that was the artist duo, Brian and Ryan, talking about their Kitchmas pageant event Friday at the Anthenaeum Arts Center in Logan Heights. You're listening to KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Jade Hindman, and I'm talking about weekend arts events with KPBS arts producer Julia Dixon-Evans. So, Julia, let's talk about dance. I know there are a lot of nutcrackers out there right now, but what about if we're looking for something else?
3: So San Diego Dance Theater has a new production, and it's not a nutcracker. And this is a contemporary dance company. This weekend's production is just three shows. It's just this weekend, and it's called Pieces of Us. There are four choreographers, including the retired founder of San Diego Dance Theater, Gene Isaacs. And these dance works are intended to explore unity and beauty, especially in the face of division and differences. So that's definitely one of those now more than ever things. And these performances are at their Lightbox Theater. It's in Liberty Station. And it is this really lovely, but also kind of low-key space to see some dance. And their choreography also always seems to be really approachable and diverse, while also still being beautiful and artful. So for first-time contemporary dance people are also longtime fans. It's a really great place to start. The shows are Friday and Saturday nights at 7, and then a matinee at 2 o'clock on Sunday.
1: Wow. In theater, there's another sort of alternative holiday classic, this time by a local playwright. Tell us about Star of Akatío.
3: Yeah, this is being billed as a new nativity play. It's by Herbert Seguenza, who wrote it for Onstage Playhouse in Chula Vista. And it starts with a wealthy couple and all of their wealthy friends who've built this this lavish home, this lavish lifestyle in the desert near the border. And we also have a young undocumented girl who is hiding out in the desert nearby. And the play kind of follows what happens when those worlds collide. And a cool thing about this production is that Onstage Playhouse has a donation-based ticketing system. It's part of their push to broaden their audience beyond the traditional theater goer. So they're trying to remove whatever barriers are keeping people from coming to see plays. So donations start at $15 a ticket online. And it opens on Friday and runs through the 23rd of the month.
1: And from theater to music now, there's a soul, rock, and R&B show at the Casbah
3: tonight. Who's playing? Okay, so first, the opening act is We the Commas, and they're a local group that's kind of equal parts R&B and, and surf culture. And this is their latest single. It's called Sunkissed Afro. Curly hair, I know you love my curly hair. You
0: wouldn't help stop and stare. I know that we got something here. Oh, Sundress, I ain't soft skin, cutting your rib tight. Can't keep swimming,
1: baby. The sun sets on the west
5: side. But I got a question. Could we get to ride? Let me show you Cali love. I know you like my sun.
3: And we, the commas, have put out a handful of singles already this year, so I'm hopeful that means an album is on the horizon. And for tonight's show, the Casbah, they're opening for Oh He Dead, which is a soul and rock band from D.C. They're known for their incredible live shows, so I think this is going to be great, especially in the Casbah space. I'll leave you with their recent single. It's called Lightning Drunk.
1: details on these and more arts events and sign up for julia's weekly newsletter at kpbs.org arts i've been speaking with kpbs arts producer julia dixon evans julia thanks thank you jade coming up a local professor shares her story of cultural exchange in a new memoir
5: saying inshallah with chutzpah is this idea of understanding or looking into saying an Arabic word from a Jewish perspective, from a Jewish voice.
1: You're listening to KPBS Midday Edition. You're listening to KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Jade Hindman. A San Diego professor is out with her debut memoir. The book, Saying Inshallah with Chutzpah, follows one unlikely scenario a Jewish woman working for a Muslim government. After setting a wedding date to her then fiance, Jessica Keith accepts an offer to work for the Consulate of Kuwait in Los Angeles. There, she helps students with their scholarships and adjustment to American college life. But what starts out as a new job during an economic crisis becomes an opportunity to navigate two different cultures and grow new relationships along the way. Jessica Keith joins me now to talk about the book. And Professor Keith, welcome.
5: Thank you so much for having me.
1: So glad you're joining us. So the title reflects a key theme in your book and also this bridge between Muslim and Jewish cultures. Can you break that down and what the title means? Yes.
5: So the title Inshallah is an Arabic word, which means if God wills it. And chutzpah means with courage or takes risks or fearless. So if someone tells you, you have chutzpah, it means they admire the fact that you're not afraid to do or say something that shocks or surprises people. So the idea of saying inshallah with chutzpah is this idea of understanding or looking into saying an Arabic word from a Jewish perspective, from a Jewish voice. And you had a
1: really unique experience working in the Kuwait government. So what led you to take on the job?
5: Well, I had been living in Spain for a year and I came back Uh, In two thousand eight, and the economy crashed, and I was without a job, doing temp work, and I was wrapping presents for a Grinch, feeling like a Jewish elf, and I had been applying for jobs, and after a year, I got a call to interview at what was listed as a cultural office, and I wasn't sure exactly what that was, but I figured it had to be better than wrapping presents. And my background was in international education. So I went to the interview and I was introduced to a woman with the name challah. And I was like, Oh challah, like, like the Jewish bread. And there was a lot of yelling in the interview, but yelling with excitement. And I was used to that from, um, my Jewish family and how we speak with excitement. So when I was in the room, I didn't understand the words that the director was using. He would yell, marhaba, la, 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 Zain Zain Zain, hamdulillah, shukran. And I did not know any Arabic, and I was not familiar with Kuwait. I don't even think I could have found it on a map, but he was so enthusiastic and excited, and this led me to the job. That is excellent. And I mean, what propelled you to
1: really want to write about these experiences in a book and share them?
5: Now, more than ever, we are engrossed and stuck in a narrative of disconnect. And this is a narrative we don't hear. We don't hear enough, but we really don't hear this beautiful and funny journey of a Jewish woman and mainly having developing this lovely relationship with her boss, who is the cultural attache for Kuwait. And I want there to be stories that people can carry that show another side.
1: And, you know, you really wanted to focus on Jewish stories about joy. I mean, why do you think these stories are far and few between, at least in mainstream media, like movies or shows?
5: Yes. Judaism, our history, is filled with war and atrocities. And we carry that. That is part of our culture, which is not uncommon to, to many cultures, but as, as Jews, we carry that. And it's really important to me that especially as it's a coming-of-age story, that a younger generation of Jews, as they're hearing about the war right now even, that, that they know that that's not the only narrative that we have, that we carry, that we don't have to just shoulder the burden of our history, but that we can also lift up the positive voices and hear our positive stories and let saying inshallah with chutzpah be a reminder of the positive stories we carry.
1: Right. And and it's really important for young people, right, to experience these stories and really see this joyful kind of representation.
5: yes. Yes. It's not a story we hear enough, and through the book, saying "Inshallah" with chutzpah, it's a coming-of-age story. You know, it's it's relatable in the sense of it's myself as a young woman without a job, temping, and what it what it looks like to kind of go out in the work working force and not knowing what's right and just being in in lost in translation and in unfamiliar waters.
1: And this book is also really funny. You write with this sort of sardonic voice that really captures the experience of navigating both cultures. Can you talk to us about one moment in the book where things got lost in translation?
5: Well, it was typically around the time of my wedding when everybody wanted to give me advice. So my boss said to me, marrying one woman is like eating chicken for the rest of your life, which now when you hear that, it might sound demeaning and it might sound degrading. And you might make a lot of assumptions from hearing that. But at the time, what it said to me was that the cultural attaché from Kuwait felt comfortable with me as an American woman enough to make a joke about marrying multiple women and now when i speak to young students about it and they challenge me on it i spoke to them about the history of it like why is it that men historically have been able to take on more than one wife and the students assume that that was just in muslim culture but that also historically was also in Jewish culture. So when we hear that remark, I think some people might make assumptions about it, but it's important to pause and think about what that actually meant historically. And the assumptions that we make say more about ourselves than it does about the statement.
1: And you even, you took a cake to an office party, right?
5: Yes. It was an office birthday, which we all know office birthdays can be awkward. And I had assumed that everyone had forgotten my co-worker's birthday. So I stopped and got a tiramisu. When I arrived at the office, it turned out everyone had bought a cake or made a cake, assuming that everyone else had forgotten as well. When it got time to serve my cake... Uh, it was served to one of my coworkers Abdul Batten and all of a sudden i see a woman charging like a bull across the office smacking the cake off his plate and looking at me mouthing you idiot and i thought okay no it has coffee in it but i had seen him at starbucks and i thought I know he can drink coffee. And then I thought, oh, it's the lady fingers, but there's alcohol in tiramisu. Uh, You know, I didn't know that. (laughs) Yes. Yes. There's alcohol in it. And this was a, it was a learning opportunity, but also speaks to my naivety, you know, in trying to do all of the right things. I often misstepped.
1: Yeah, but there, you know what? There's a blessing in all the missteps, for sure, <laughs> and opportunities yes. to learn. You know, you write about some of the challenges you faced at work, also how the people um, in your life responded when you took the job. Tell
5: me more about that, and and what did you hear? Um, well, when I took the job, I was six months away from getting married, and people assumed that that meant I was having cold feet about the wedding when it was actually the opposite. I have a debilitating anxiety disorder, and I was afraid that if I didn't move away and see that I could survive on my own, that I had this fear that if Tyrone died, I wouldn't be able to survive. How did you overcome that? Well, I did not overcome that and this is this is uh, when I go to speak about the book, it does delve into what it looks like to have an anxiety disorder mm-hmm. And a lot of people say, well oh, that must mean you don't have it anymore, right? I mean, you wrote this book, you teach, you speak to large audiences about the book so you don't have it anymore, right
4: mm-hmm. And
5: part of what I, try to show in the book is what it looks like to have an anxiety disorder. And in speaking with people now about it, I try to explain the duality that exists, that you can have a debilitating anxiety disorder and still present to hundreds of people on the book. I could work for this government and do what I considered, you know, outstanding work. But every day, and every time I took the elevator to ride to the 18th floor of the Century City Twin Tower, I believed I was going to die.
1: So it's, it's definitely something that you live with, learn to live with and cope with. I mean, how did you really represent mental health in your book?
5: I was very honest with what it what it looks like. So a lot of passages in the book are my internal voice. So outwardly, you'll see me. I'm in maybe in a suit or nice pants and a nice jacket with makeup on. But inside, the thoughts in my head take over, repeating, you're going to die and there's nothing you can do about it. And as my logic self, I know, like right now, when I'm not in a state of panic, I can say to you, I know I'm not going to die. I know that riding the elevator, it's not going to kill me. But the second I step into the elevator, that logical self is not part of my body. It leaves my body and the panic takes over.
1: Wow, and it was a long journey to write this book and and getting it published
5: ten years, right? Yes, it took me ten years. I have three young children. I have a full-time job. There was a pandemic. There was no in-person school for an entire year. And you know, in between all of the things, it was a project of passion that I just kept with.
1: Yeah. And you also teach cross-cultural communication at SDSU. Do the experiences you write about in this book inform your work today at all?
5: It does. It's what it does also is it helps students understand that I have, I have, when I speak with international students studying in the U.S., I try to describe being in a similar situation, understanding what it feels like to be a fish out of water. I want them to understand that I'm not just speaking to that or lecturing on it, but I have been vulnerable enough to share the insides, the intimate details of what that looked like for me.
1: And so why is it so important to have this cross-cultural understanding especially during this time?
5: I feel like the news and social media and our narratives are sort of snowball and we get we get stuck in the narrative that we want to hear, but the story is a reminder of breaking assumptions acknowledging the assumptions that we have versus understanding the realities. And sometimes it's easier for us to decide that our assumptions are accurate. And my hope is through the book and through teaching and through my life that I have people consider another side to that.
1: I've been speaking with Jessica Keith, author of the memoir Sang Inshallah with Hutzpah. The book is out now. Professor Keith,
5: thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. And for people in San Diego, they can find the book at their local bookstore, the book Catapult in South Park, in La Jolla at Warwick's, in Los Angeles at Romans, or on Amazon.